this tonight. Okay, help me to, um, that everything will be accomplished. God's will be done, okay? So let's go ahead. Let me know. Are you ready back there? All is good. All right, so Lord, I thank you tonight. I thank you, Lord, for speaking through me everything that needs to be said tonight. Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit moving upon every single person that's going to be hearing this. Lord, that even now we are good soil. The Holy Spirit prepares our hearts, our minds for the Word of God. Help us, Lord, to get locked in and focused by the Holy Spirit to give you our best ear, our full attention, that we're not going to be distracted or hindered in any way. But the Holy Spirit helps us. He opens up, opens up our minds to truth and revelation from Him. And Lord, I thank you for anointed eyes and ears of the Spirit to be able to see and hear maybe what we couldn't before, but the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the Word of God. And Lord, I thank you for speaking through me everything that needs to be said tonight. Let it go out as living seeds of truth sown into good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit to take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes. Lord, let the winds of your Spirit carry this out among the nations. It's going to go where it needs to go, accomplish what it needs to, and um, Lord, let everything be said, everything be accomplished in and through this time that you will to be done. Now, we know the birds of the air try to steal the seed. So, Lord, we agree together. We submit this unto you, and we resist the devil. He must flee. We bind up anything and everything of the enemy right now in Jesus' name that would try to hinder this in any way from getting where it's supposed to and accomplishing what it's supposed to do. We bind you in Jesus' name. We command you to back off. And, Lord, we thank you for your angels clearing all that out. And, Lord, this everything is going to be accomplished in and through the word of the Lord tonight in every life that your will to be done. It will not return void, but accomplish that which you sent it for to do. So we thank you for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so finally, I feel like I've been trying to preach this for a little while, and God's been taking us in different directions, and we need to be led by the Spirit. But now we're back in the book of Revelation and we're going to be primarily looking at Revelation chapter 16 tonight. And I'm going to talk about a lot of different things. And I'm going to close out by giving you some, some facts and understanding a little bit about the Antichrist. So anyway, let's go ahead. And if you got the notes, look on page one. And those are following along. We're going to look at Revelation 15, 1 through around 8. And then we'll get into 16 here in just a second. So... Just to give a quick pre, you know, um, preview of what we're looking at tonight. So we've been going through the book of Revelation. So we know that right now where we're at, most likely the seals are being opened. That's why so much is going on in the earth. Um, we're at that time where things are opening up, things are moving forward. There's a lot going on. And at some point in time, the remnant bride will be raptured out, will be caught away to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and I don't believe that we're there yet. I believe there's going to be a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's going to get us ready for that, to meet the Lord in the air, and I don't believe that's quite happened, but we're getting there. And so in this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we're going to see a bride made ready, but we're also going to see the harvest yield and the fulfillment of the Scripture, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh. So we're, we're right at that time where I believe that is the next thing. So that will culminate with the rapture, and then at some point in time after that, I don't believe it'll be long, the Antichrist is going to be on the scene. He may emerge pretty soon, but he's going to consolidate things as far as the nations go, and he'll come to power. And 
when he's able to sign a peace covenant with Israel, that's when the seven-year tribulation, the days of Jacob's trouble begins because the focus is on the nation of Israel, okay? So you have this before that, right now, we're going to see a harvest yield in the earth. But after the covenant is signed with Israel and the tribulation begins, God raises up 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will fill the earth with the gospel. And during that first half of the tribulation is going to be widespread persecution and martyrdom of Christianity. So those that are Christians during the first three and a half years are basically going to be hunted down and persecuted and killed. And the Bible shows that the Christians are brought into heaven as tribulation saints, and they're going to be placed underneath the golden altar in the heaven's uh, tabernacle. I'm sorry, underneath the bronze altar, rather. And so they're there, they're in heaven, but they don't seem to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. They, that seemed to have already been going on. They're, they're under the altar. It's like a special place for them. Which shows us that the Bible says in Romans that our lives are to be laid down as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And, and basically, that's what these tribulation saints have done. They did not love their lives unto death. They overcame this evil world and the Antichrist and all that. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. In other words, they would not deny the Lord. And so they died a martyr's death, and they're under the altar. And so that's the first three and a half years. During that time, the trumpet judgments are on the earth. And the trumpet judgments have to do, one of them will be, remember, an asteroid that comes upon the earth. There's not going to be an extinction level thing by any means, but it will bring great destruction. So that's the trumpet judgments during the first three and a half years. Then in the middle of the tribulation, we know that the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple. Because the Jews, once he made a peace covenant with them, it seems like they were able to once again begin the, the various type of offerings that were going on. So the Jews again in Israel bringing their, their animals to the uh, temple to be offered. And so that was going on. And so the Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation time sets himself up in the temple and declares himself to be God and to be worshipped as God. And he puts a stop to the sacrifices, and he sets up an idol of some kind to himself or something, but an image that can speak, and he demands all of Israel to worship him as God and to worship his idol. And of course, we know the Jews won't do that. So they're going to revolt, and this abomination that he just did will now cause widespread desolation because he's going to release his military to kill as many Jews as he can. And we know from previous studies that the Jews are going to be measured. Some kind of a measuring rod will be used. And there's going to be one-third of them that will survive this Holocaust and supernaturally protected as they go most likely to Petra in Jordan. And the Antichrist military will try to follow them and attack them, but again, they're supernaturally protected. So once this happens... We know that this second half of the tribulation time, now God's voice in the earth is going to be the two prophets, Moses and Elijah. And so you've got to understand what's going on. The Christians are gone. You understand that? They're all martyred for the most part. 
There may be a few that have survived out somewhere living off grid or something, but for the most part, the, the Christians are gone. Two-thirds of the Jews have been slaughtered, and there's only a third supernaturally protected. So the whole earth is full of those that have taken the mark and have worshipped the Antichrist and his image, and they worship the dragon. The Bible says that. And so you're dealing with a very evil group of people that have been, uh, that basically have um, ignored the gospel and have resisted the Holy Spirit and resisted the 144,000. And now it's come to this place to where there's going to be widespread um, destruction in the earth. And God's going to release now, the first half of the tribulation was the trumpets. Now he's going to release the bold judgments. And I believe that the two prophets are basically prophesying these bold judgments. And you're going to see as we go through this that these last three and a half years are going to be so bad. Jesus called them the great tribulation. He said that if those days were not cut short, no flesh would survive. That's how bad they are. And so it's during this time that God's voice or those two witnesses in Jerusalem, they are supernaturally protected. Fire comes out of their mouths to destroy those that try to come against them. They're able, because of their prayers and all that, they're able to uh, cause the heavens to not rain, etc. So it's very similar to Moses back in the day with the plagues, but also Elijah, isn't it? Basically, what God invested in Moses and Elijah, once again, you're going to see that. And what you're going to notice is how familiar this is. Remember, the Hebrew concept of prophecy is not necessarily linear, but it is like moving forward, but it's like cycles, like a spiral through time. That as it was, it will be again. And what you see here is so similar the Antichrist is basically going to be like a Pharaoh. And then you're seeing a Moses, and you're seeing plagues come on the earth, and it's very similar to how God has dealt with things in the past, okay? So without anything else, let's go ahead and move forward into this. But let me say one more thing. So at the very end of this time, the seven-year period is over now. At the end of it, the Bible says here, and you'll see, that the nations are going to be gathered to the Valley of Megiddo in Israel to the Battle of Armageddon. And this is going to be where the river Euphrates is dried up in the east to make way for the kings of the east. It's very interesting to me because there's some kind of an ancient spirit, the dragon-type spirit that is in the far east in that China area. And this is really interesting, but as the Antichrist... His kingdom, his Babylonian one-world government is going to come under the judgment of these plagues, and it's going to cripple his economy. Just like Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh, at the end of those plagues, Egypt was pretty much on the brink of destruction. You remember what happened? All the locusts came in and ate their crops. A lot of their animals were killed. I mean, the, the Nile dried up, so the fish died, or rather turned to blood, the fish died. It was widespread destruction. In the same way, the Antichrist, his Babylonian kingdom, is going to suffer tremendously. And when that happens, it's like smelling blood in the water. The kings of the Far East, China, is going to march in to attack the Antichrist 
in a power play to try to, like a power grab, to take advantage of the fact that he is weakened. Isn't that interesting? And so you're going to see here in just a moment that the, there's these spirits sent out to draw people to this valley of Megiddo. But where they all gather for war, to come up against Israel and all of that, to fight each other, to come up against the Antichrist, Jesus is going to split the eastern sky and he's going to slaughter the enemies of Israel and come into reign for a thousand years on the throne of his father David out of Jerusalem. So in a nutshell, that's what it looks like biblically. So now that you have that premise in your mind, let's go ahead and read this. Starting with Revelation 15 verse 1, just a quick recap because it goes along with tonight's sermon. It says this, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. See, the church, the remnant bride especially, is not appointed unto the wrath of God. Okay, you notice that in the first couple chapters of Revelation, everything is about the church. Then it says, come up here, and you don't read anything else about the church, but you do read a lot about the nation of Israel, you see. And so this is the wrath of God that's coming on the earth. The first three and a half years is is this major persecution against Christians, and those trumpet judgments are the wrath of the Lamb of God, okay? But now, in the last three and a half years, you're seeing another holocaust. The Antichrist is acting like a Hitler, and he's destroying, he's killing two-thirds of the Jews, and so you're seeing the wrath of the Father in his bold judgments on the earth. So anyway, these are the last, because in them the wrath of God will be finished. In verse 2, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who were victorious over the beast, who's the beast? The Antichrist, remember? And his image, that's his idol. And the number of his name, that's the mark. It's forced that you would take a mark on your right hand and forehead, which I believe is the very reason why Christians will be killed, because they're going to be the only ones in the earth that's going to have a problem with this. But they overcame. In Revelation, in another place, we read, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, but they would not worship the beast. They would not worship his idol, and they, would, they refused to take his mark. And therefore, they were martyred, but they overcame. So what you're seeing here is now they're standing on a sea of glass in heaven, holding harps to God and sang a song of Moses, the bondservant of God, in the song of the Lamb. You remember how Israel escaped from Egypt? They were brought out, and they sang that song with Miriam, a song of overcoming, a song of rejoicing, of escape. And that's what's going on here. After these things, I look, and the temple of the tabernacle testimony in heaven was open, and the seven angels who had seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, their chest wrapped with golden sashes, And one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So here the bowls are being given. And the temple was filled with smoke of the glory of God from his power. 
And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So we skip right into 16. Revelation 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So let's just go through these straight, okay? So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores afflicted the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. So this is over a three and a half year period time, but you're going to read a condensed, it's all put together here. And I believe personally that the, the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, are going to be prophesying these plagues. In my opinion, I believe that. I believe just like Moses went to Pharaoh and said, look, let God's people go. And he said, no. And he said, because of this, God's going to do this. And a plague would come. I think it's going to be very similar. Though they may not go to the Antichrist directly, they're going to be speaking out, thus says the Lord. Because the earth refuses to repent of all the bloodshed and the worship of the beast and the worship of his image. Therefore, God is going to release this plague upon the earth. And then all of a sudden, these boils. So what's going to happen here is that all these open wounds are going to appear on people's flesh. These are the people that took the mark of the beast. And all over their bodies are going to be these painful boils. I don't know if anybody's ever had a boil, but it's basically an open wound that's going to be probably full of pus. It's going to be very painful. And uh, I was reading Dr. Cho talk about this specific thing. And he said back, I believe in the 50s or 60s in Korea, he said that he had, there was a sickness going around causing something similar to this. And he said he had these painful sores on his skin that opened up. And he said they had to put quicksilver and something else into them to, to uh, disinfect. And he said he would jump up and down in the room because of the pain. And he said, can you imagine how much worse this is going to be? But this is going to come on the peoples of the earth because they refuse. You got to understand where we're at in time. These, are, these people that this is going to happen to, very likely some of them are alive right now. They're mocking the TV preachers. They refuse to repent. The guy on the street corner trying to witness to them, they blow him off. They don't want to hear it. And then, then the rapture takes place, which is a great sign and wonder. Then you've got the 144,000 preaching the gospel. You understand how stubborn and rebellious these people are that are alive at this time? They have refused the gospel over and over and over. So God says, okay, now my wrath will come. So the first one is sores like boils on the body. Then verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. Can you imagine? This is salt water here. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs, and they became blood. So this is fresh water. This is drinking water now. And in verse 5, it says, I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you, O Lord, the one who is and who was, O Holy One, because you judge these things. They, talking about the evil people of the world, 
they poured out the blood of your saints and your prophets. And so now you give them blood to drink. And, they, and it says here, and they deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, yes, O Lord. What is the altar? Remember, this is the tribulation saints that are under the altar. And they respond at these judgments, yes, O Lord. The Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. They're responding because they were once in the earth during this time and were martyred for their faith. And they're seeing the judgment of God come on the earth. And in verse 8, And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given power to scorch people with fire. And the people were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they, they did not repent so as to give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Now this is that throne where the Antichrist set himself in the temple with his throne declaring himself to be God and demanding to be worshipped. So God pours out this fifth angel pours, pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast, okay? And his kingdom became darkened so that they gnawed their tongues of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of, the, of their pain and of their sores, but they did not repent of their deeds. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, which is in the Middle East, and the water of the Euphrates dried up so that it would prepare the way for the kings of the east. So this is making way for the, the China and military forces to invade now into the Antichrist kingdom. Now, personally, this is just, I'm speculating with you. I wonder, with Iraq being like it is, how Iraq, through the whole thing that happened with America invading there, and ISIS came in behind that and slaughtered all the Christians and drove everybody out. Iraq has kind of been purged of any Christianity. And that's ancient Babylon. I wonder personally if the Antichrist won't set up his kingdom out of that area. Kind of like a headquarters, if you will. And the kings of the east will see how the Antichrist kingdom now is weakened. The Antichrist kingdom, their, their military has been weakened. Their economy is weakened. They're in disarray and darkness. And so the kings of the east see blood in the water and think, now we can invade with a power play to dethrone this dictator. We can set ourselves up over the earth. So here's what's going to happen. In Armageddon, it says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Now, who's the dragon? Satan. So out of Satan's mouth and out of the mouth of the beast, this is the Antichrist, basically like his son, his false messiah, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, there were three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out 
to the kings of the entire world to kind of put a hook in them and gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. So they're being drawn by those demonic spirits. They're being summoned and drawn to Israel, okay? And Jesus said, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes, so that he will not walk about naked, and the people will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which is in Hebrew called Armageddon. So you see that the nations, the kings of the earth, are being drawn to this place where they're going to be drawn into conflict, into battle with one another, and maybe against Israel, I believe, but Jesus is going to split the eastern sky and come down upon them and slaughter them. And so this leads now to the seventh bowl. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake. Now I want you to really pay attention to this. Such as there has not been since mankind was upon the earth. This is probably a worldwide massive earthquake. And I'm, I'm going to tell you why I think that it takes place here in just a moment. And so it says, so great an earthquake and so mighty, the great city, talking about Jerusalem, was split into three parts. And cities of the nations fell. Can you imagine major cities like Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, all those skyscrapers, everything, great cities just collapsing completely to the ground. Babylon the Great was remembered in the sight of God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath, and every island fled. You know what that means? It means that the oceans covered the islands. And no mountains were found. So mountains are going to be brought down. And huge hailstones. Now this is interesting. In the seventh bowl, it says, huge hailstones weighing about a talent each came down from heaven upon the people, and people blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, and because the hailstone plague was very severe. So I know a few years back, I mentioned this earlier in this service to those that were here, but I want to get this in the recording. There was a hailstorm that hit my parents' house back, what year was that? 2012. And during that hailstorm, hell there was probably about baseball-sized hail, but it went completely through their roof, ripping huge holes in their roof, going down to the, bouncing on the floor, and that was baseball size. This hail that is here is going to be like soccer ball and basketball-sized hail. I can't even imagine the destruction. So this is going to be extremely severe, and this is the final, the seventh plague. <coughs> now, it talks about this massive worldwide earthquake. And when you deal with an earthquake that's that severe, it produces these tsunamis. So these huge waves are going to crash over the islands, and that's why every island will flee away. 
Mountains will be brought down. The reason why I personally suspect, this is just speculation, the reason, one of the reasons why I believe this earthquake is going to happen is because even standing in our day right now, there are megalithic structures around the world that were built back before the flood that go back to early days of those Nephilim on the earth. And there's no way that without those giants and things, there was no way that these could have been built in the first place. But these places are very ancient and very evil. These places were places where there was a lot of human and animal sacrifice to fallen angels and ultimately to Satan, etc. There's still to this day altars there that display that that used to happen. And there's mounds all over our nation. There are mounds that were built by these Nephilim. And I believe that all of these high places, all of these dark places that go back even to ancient times, that this earthquake is going to bring everything down before Jesus Christ. Even they have excavated these tunnels under the earth that were built by the Nephilim. Even those things, this earthquake will be so severe that everything will come down before him and prepare the earth for his reign. So let me talk about for a few moments some things. I'm going to close with this, but I kind of need to give you some back uh, backstory because the way that things are going to play out has a lot to do with the ancient times, okay? So we know that from the Bible in Genesis chapter 6 that fallen angels back in ancient times came down and they procreated with women and produced this race called the Nephilim. So it's a mix of angel and the demonic. So these were not people that were actually be considered human beings. They were some kind of a hybrid, okay? And some of them were great giants. And it's interesting because even to this day, the Bible says that Nimrod tried to kind of resurrect all of that, which I'll explain in a moment. And during the days of Nimrod, they wanted to see the, those uh, golden years or whatever of the uh, Nephilim. They kind of wanted to see that restored somehow. And they built this tower, the Tower of Babel. And God came down and scattered them. And isn't it interesting that as they scattered to the nations, that if you go back and you look at the history all over the world of people that were dispersed, you're going to find ancient stories in their lore. You're going to find ancient stories about a flood on the earth. And you'll find ancient stories about the gods, supposedly, coming down and procreating with women. This is very prevalent in the Greek uh, culture with Greek mythology. So it's kind of like the knowledge of it was dispersed. These mystery religions, these mystery cults were dispersed among the nations. And there's, it's found in their ancient lore and their mythology but yet, it's like looking through some kind of a cracked mirror at what the Bible teaches us in, as fact and reality. So back then, in ancient times, you get some of this from the book of Enoch, which is extra biblical. So just take it with a grain of salt. It's not, I'm not saying it's on the level of the Bible, but there is a lot of wisdom in it, and the early church seemed to honor it. But according to the book of Enoch, there was about 200 watcher 
um, angels that came down on Mount Hermon, which is in Israel. And they began to take unto themselves wives to procreate and produce this Nephilim. Now, here's what's interesting about Mount Hermon. The Jews believe Mount Hermon is like the very gateway to hell itself. Isn't that interesting? And here's something neat about this story, because Jesus would have obviously been familiar with this, and so would the, his disciples. Jesus was standing at the base of Mount Hermon when he preached this message to his disciples. He said, Peter, who do you say that I am? He said, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said this at the base of Mount Hermon. He said, flesh and blood did not reveal that, but my Father... And he said, the gates of hell itself will not prevail against my church. It's no accident that he preached that at Mount Hermon. Then, to top it off, he goes up Mount Hermon, and that's the very mountain where he was transfigured. He was showing his dominion over the gates of hell. This is where in ancient times... Apparently, these fallen angels descended on Mount Hermon, and they began to take wives into themselves. And the offspring were probably all kinds of mutations, but we know that some of them were giants. They also, in the book of Enoch, sinned with animals and produced some kind of weird hybrids there, different types of uh, centaurs and satyrs, etc. But the, this took place in the Bible... Uh, it lays this out. If you, if you look at Enoch and then look at the Bible, it's a perfect parallel. There's no contradiction here. But it was in the days of Jared, and it continued until the flood. I want you to think about how long that is. That was almost 1,300 years. That's a long period of time. From the signing of our Declaration of Independence until right now, it was only around 245 years. Think about over a thousand years that this took place. And so God eventually saw, according to Enoch, these, the fallen angels brought down knowledge, like occult knowledge, and these Nephilim offspring basically perverted the earth. They were cannibalistic. They were extremely violent. So you had all kinds of bloodshed, violence, cannibalism. You had all kinds of witchcraft and occult practices, which God hates. These megalithic structures themselves were built for the worship of these fallen angels. So the earth was full of violence and bloodshed, all kinds of dark satanic practices, and idol worship. The very things God hates all kinds of sexual immorality and perversions. And so we know that during this time, Enoch was alive. How many knows that God has always had a remnant in the earth? Even though this was beginning to fill the earth, Enoch walked with God during those days, which I believe is prophetic. Because we're going to see, Jesus says, it was, as it was in the days of Lot and Noah, it would be at his coming. So these days of great spiritual darkness are upon us, and they're coming, and it's going to get darker. But yet God will have like a group of people, like an Enoch, 
that will live righteous and walk with him even in a very dark time. So Enoch walked with God, and here's the surprising thing. People lived so long back then that during Enoch's lifetime, Adam would have still been alive. Enoch was the seventh from Adam, so that'd be like what is great, 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 great granddad, right? And so it is very likely that Enoch sought out an audience with Adam and asked him about how things used to be. And Adam would have talked with Enoch about how God would come down and walk with him in the cool of the day. Don't you think that that put like a fire, in, a hunger in Enoch to know God, to walk with God like he, he knew Adam, it was available to Adam at one time, and Enoch began to pursue God. In fact, the Bible says that it became a habit. It says that he habitually walked with God, continually, all the time. He became a great prayer warrior, and according to the book of Enoch, would go off and spend time with God for very long periods of time, and then he would come back with wisdom and revelation, and people would sit at his feet, and he would teach them. But Enoch walked with God, and then he had a son named Methuselah, who lived the longest in recorded biblical history. Then Methuselah had a son, Lamech. And now the 10th generation comes as Lamech has Noah. But see, there was something there where Enoch spent time alone with God and taught his family about the one true God and what pleased God. And so Methuselah, then Lamech, and then Noah, they knew the true God and they kept themselves pure. They did not get tainted by all the filth in the world. They were not worshiping fallen angels. They were not participating in all the sexual immorality and perversions. It's like they were living righteously. And when the fullness of time came, God's judgment was going to come in the, in the form of a flood. And Enoch was basically raptured out. But God told Noah to build an ark. And it said about Noah and his children... It says they were perfect in their generations. Now, that probably means righteousness, okay? But it also means in the Hebrew, I looked it up, it means that their blood, their DNA was perfect. They were not intermarried and intermingled with the DNA of the fallen angels. Their blood had remained pure. And so God said about Noah that he found favor with God and so God told Noah to get his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and to gather them. They're going to build the ark, and then them and their wives would go in, eight in all. And the flood came. Why was there such a severe judgment? Because the entire world was so just perverted and evil and so polluted with that Nephilim DNA. So God sends a flood. He eradicates all of that. And then Noah and his family. And it's a picture and type of the rapture, isn't it? The wrath of God comes down. The people of God float up above. And then when the wrath of God subsides, the people of God come back on the earth again. It's a picture and type of the rapture. But it's interesting because the Bible says, in those days and also afterward, there were giants. 
So even though this took place in ancient times pre-flood, we know that it also happened again. And that's where you get the stories about these things in the land of Canaan. So this is all in the Bible. I know that a lot of people don't know the Bible, so this sounds different to them. Maybe the first time they've ever heard parts of the Bible. But anyway, in the land of Canaan, when Noah and his family dispersed, Shem seemed to be the one that really followed God. And Shem learned from his father about the one true God, what pleased God, what displeased God. And they were basically like what's called Noahide laws during this time, to abstain from sexual morality, abstain from bloodshed and uh, idolatry, etc. But Shem really followed the path that God had laid out for his family. He kind of carried it on. Japheth moved up north to where we have like Europe and the Slavic areas, and that's where he populated. And Ham populated down south, down in Africa, in Egypt, in Canaan. In fact, Ham's son was named Canaan. And so Ham was the one that his descendants seemed to really pick up on witchcraft, the occult, the dark arts. You see it very pervasive in Africa to this day. You saw it very pervasive in Egypt. But man, the land of Canaan was overtaken with this stuff. And it said about the land of Canaan that this was where the giants were. So again, you see this Nephilim. So the question is, why did Satan incite, according to the book of Enoch, before the flood, 200 angels to go down and pollute the human race? Why did Satan do that? Well, I believe there's a couple different reasons, not the least of which is this, that if Satan could pollute the entire human DNA, then it would have been impossible for Jesus to come. So number one, I believe the devil was trying to stop the coming of the Lord, the Messiah. Number two, what could be a more powerful way to bring an entire human race under satanic domination than to do this? This was a way to literally dominate and oppress the entire human race. And then number three, I think that Satan thought to himself, if I make this earth so perverted and so evil that God himself will just turn his back on it and forget about this place, and he can basically remain like the God of this perverted world. Does this make sense? Or, because Satan knows that God said about him is eventually he's going to be in the lake of fire. So Satan's been trying to prevent the coming of Jesus. He's been trying to prevent all these things from happening, including his own judgment. But anyway, so the land of Canaan becomes a place that's so dark, it's reminiscent now of what the pre-flood world was like. The land of Canaan was full of idolatry, satanic occult practices, all kinds of witchcraft and necromancy. There was violence, all the things that the pre-flood world it's like 
Canaan began to have that again. As a matter of fact, when you look at it, there were tribes like the Rephaim and the Anakim that specifically were known to be giants. And many of you know the story out of the land of Canaan among the Philistines with an individual named Goliath that had six fingers and six toes that David himself had to kill. This was a Nephilim. This was a giant out of the land of Canaan. And so let me give you some backstory now real quick, and I'm going to close with this. So in these ancient times, there was a man by the name of Nimrod. So you had the flood. Shem, Ham, and Japheth spread out. The nations begin to get populated again. And Nimrod arose in the ancient land of Samaria, which was like ancient Babylon, the Chaldeans, Nimrod arose, and the Bible says about Nimrod, the reason why I'm talking about Nimrod is because he's a picture and type of the coming Antichrist. It says about Nimrod that he became a mighty warrior, a mighty hunter before God. He did something. As a matter of fact, when it says he became mighty, the word in Hebrew is gibor, and it's the word that is used about these giants, about these uh, Nephilim, that it's a word that describes them, the mighty ones, the, the men of renown. It's like he, he did something to become mighty. He did some kind of a dark ritual or something where he probably got possessed by some kind of an ancient powerful spirit that overtook him. But he began with his wife, Semiramis, they began to try to bring back that pre-flood knowledge, and they began to unite the world of that time under his rule. And they were building a tower. Why would they build the Tower of Babel? Could it be that they were saying to themselves, even if God floods the earth again, we're gonna build something higher than his floodwaters? Could it be something like this? Could they have been building another Mount Hermon where they were going to try to summon again the, the gods from above to come down? Could it be in their delusion that they thought that they could be a god over the earth themselves and that they somehow were going to erect something high enough to kind of dethrone the god of Noah and set themselves up as the gods of this earth? I don't know what all was going on there. But Nimrod was trying to bring back something pre-flood. And so God looked down and saw it, and God confused the language and scattered them among the nations. And that's where you get all these stories, okay? <clears throat> so in the days of Nimrod, I'm going to say a few more things that are important. This, it was during Nimrod's worldwide reign out of Sumer there, that Abraham was born. Abraham was born in the Ur of the Chaldees. And according to some reading that I did among, you know, like the Jewish writings, and this is outside of just the Bible, but I'm going to give you this because I think there's some truth to this. According to Jewish writings, Nimrod knew that there was something different about Abraham when he was born. And so Nimrod was threatened by him. Do you remember whenever Pharaoh 
knew something was up when Moses was born. And so he began to have all the male babies thrown in the Nile. Do you remember the story of when Herod knew something was up when Jesus was born and tried to have his military slaughter all the babies to kill Jesus? Of course, he didn't know who he was. I think that there's probably some truth to this. Nimrod knew that there was something about Abram. And so according to Jewish writings, he captured Abram and his brother, and he brought them before him, and he had created a fiery furnace and threw both of them in it to kill him. But according to Jewish writings, Abraham's brother did die, but Abraham was supernaturally protected. And I know his name was Abram at the time. I'm just trying to make it easy to follow as, as I tell it. So anyway, Abram, his brother dies in this fiery furnace, but he escapes supernaturally, and he flees, listen to this, to Shem. Because he knew that he would be, that would be a safe place for him. Shem was still alive. According to the Jewish writing, Shem was still alive. He was the son of Noah. And even though Abraham grew up in the Ur of the Chaldees, where all these other idols were and all these other gods were worshipped and all this, Shem began to teach Abraham about the one true God. That all these other idols are false, all these other gods are false, and Shem began to teach Abraham how to please the one true God and how to live for him. In fact, according to Jewish writings, Shem was actually Melchizedek. And isn't it interesting that later on when God spoke to Abraham to leave his father's house and go to the land of Canaan, that when God gave Abraham a supernatural victory over those four kings, who is it that Abraham appeared to that had him bless him was Shem, well, Melchizedek, which most likely was Shem. Maybe, according to Jewish writings, was his mentor, his spiritual mentor. And so Abraham, when he was at his father's house and God spoke to him, the God that he learned about from Shem, the one true God, speaks to Abraham and says, I want you to leave your father's house. That's why Abraham felt a burden for his nephew Lot because Nimrod was really after him. But his, his brother died. Do you see what I'm saying? So his brother that died, this is his son, Lot. And so Abraham felt that he needed to take care of Lot and offered, if you can come with me. So Lot goes with him. They go to the land of Canaan. But in the land of Canaan is all these Nephilim and all this occult dark practices and all the evil that's there. And so later on, we know the story. We know that Abraham eventually produced Isaac and then Jacob. And we know Jacob went to Egypt with the 70, and there he became a mighty nation. And we know the story about Moses bringing them out. And whenever it was time for Joshua to lead the children of Israel into Canaan, you have to understand why God was so strict about things. It's probably going to make more sense after I've explained all this, but God spoke to Moses to tell the children of Israel Basically, if I could paraphrase, 
you're going into satanic territory. As a matter of fact, Bible scholars believe that actually Jericho was an ancient Nephilim megalithic structure that they had built upon, and it was like a literal stronghold. And so the very first place that had to come down was that stronghold. But God was saying through Moses to them, when you go into this satanic territory, I will go before you. I will fight for you. I will even cause these giants to fall before you. These nations that are mightier than you that you're scared of, they've got giants in them. They've got militaries that you're scared of. He said, I myself will fight for you, and I will bring them down before you. But he said, when you go into their cities, you do not practice witchcraft that they practice. You do not consult the dead. You will tear down every altar that they erected to these false gods, and you will destroy every image they created. You don't tolerate it. Now you understand why God was so strict on them. They were going into dark, satanic territory. And Joshua begins to lead the military of Israel into conquest of Canaan. Jericho falls. They begin to go in. And you know what? All these nations begin to fall before him. The giants begin to flee before them. And God gave them that territory. But here's what Satan is going to basically do. Just like it was in the days of Nimrod, Nimrod was a, a, became mighty. And Nimrod was the first global leader under Satan. It's going to be like the Antichrist is another Nimrod and Babylon, the Tower of Babel, the nations are going to be gathered under the Antichrist kind of like his Babylonian system is going to be almost like a Tower of Babel, so to speak, in the world. Does this make sense? And all Jesus said as it was in the days of Lot and Noah, it's going to be at his coming. So somehow... Satan is going to begin to reinstitute in the earth the thick darkness of evil. Pre-flood evil is going to come back into the world under the Antichrist. People, the Bible says the nations, they're going to worship the dragon, which is Satan. They're going to take a mark. I wonder with technology like it is, I wonder, this is just something I speculate with you, is that mark going to be something that actually tampers with human DNA? Is it going to be something that is going to cause the earth again to become more Nephilim? But listen to the moral decay of humanity in the last days in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul said, but realize this, that in the last days, very difficult times will come. And in the Greek that, Greek, that means fierce, like a fierce animal, like a wolf that's snarling at you. A fierceness about it will come. He said, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, slanderers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips. I'm going to tell you, I've been surprised among Christianity at slanderers and gossipers. 
Without any self-control, they're brutal. They're haters of good. They're treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they deny its power, avoid such people. And I'm concerned because I see today there's forms of Christianity out there that are powerless. That's concerning because the gospel is supposed to be the power of God unto salvation. There should be power. And when you see forms of godliness without any power, that's a sign of the last days. And then it goes on to say, avoid those people. But it says, among them are those who slip into households and captivate weak women weighed down by sins led on by various impulses. They're always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, this is interesting here. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, Janus and Jan- Jambres, according to Jewish writings, you guys remember the um, Balaam? You remember the false prophet Balaam, who Balak hired to curse Israel. Remember, he was a great sorcerer. He, he was a master occultist. These were his two sons, according to Jewish writings. And they served Pharaoh in his courts as master occultists, master magicians they were able to duplicate some of the signs that God gave Moses, including when Moses threw his rod down and it turned to a snake. Janus and Jambres, the sons of Balaam, did the same thing through witchcraft. But we know Moses' snake ate theirs. But it says, so these men also opposed the truth. They're men of depraved minds, worthless in regard to the faith but they will not make further progress for their foolishness will be obvious to all, just as was also with Janus and Jambres. So you see the moral decay of humanity coming. You're seeing that as it was in the days of Lot, as it was in the days of Noah. You know, I read about Sodom and Gomorrah. I believe, if I remember right, I was reading the book of Jasher, which again, is extra biblical, so take it with a grain of salt. But I think there's some truth to this because Ezekiel wrote about Sodom, and he said the sins of Sodom were this. They had idleness of time and abundance of bread. Think about that for a moment because you're thinking that Ezekiel would have talked about all their sexual immorality. I started reading about Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Jasher, it might have been another writing as well, but here's, here's the description of these people. It said about the people of Sodom and Gomorrah that they were gluttonous. They, they were, um, just like Ezekiel, they had abundance of bread and idleness of time. So they had wealth, but here's the way they were. If there were people that were traveling through their region with their family, these people of Sodom and Gomorrah would go attack them, leave them for dead, and steal all of their belongings. Even though they had abundance of bread, they lusted after more material things. They lusted after more and more food than they lusted sexually. In other words, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were incredibly selfish people that just cared about satisfying their own lusts. And they were more than willing to attack innocent people to take what they wanted from them. 
we're living in a time <laughs> where we're beginning to see more and more of that type of stuff. You see, you and I that are Christians, I'm talking to a lot of Christians, you and I would never want to participate in jumping people and beating people half to death to go into their business and steal a TV. Do you see what I'm saying? But here's the thing. There's a group of people emerging that, spiritually speaking, are just like the sodomites. They have this lusting in them that now, when they have an opportunity to gather together and riot and attack innocent people and beat them down and then go in and take what doesn't belong to them, that's what they'll do because inside of them, that's what they want. That's just now their excuse and their opportunity to do what they want to do. Because you and I, even if the opportunity presented itself, we wouldn't do that. As Christians, that's not in us to do that. But you're seeing the moral decay, excuse me, the moral decay of society circling the toilet bowl Now, let me close by reading some of this tonight. Is all this making sense tonight? I'm hoping I'm not losing people, but you need to know about these things. So here's some things about the Antichrist, and, and I'm just going to read over this and close with this. Revelation 6, verse 2. This is why I was trying to explain to you a little bit about Nimrod and the ancient civilization of times past. Revelation 6-2, the Antichrist is the rider on the white horse. Remember, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That white horse is, I believe, the Antichrist spirit going out into the world, but that will eventually give way to a physical man. The Bible calls the Antichrist, among many other names, but it's interesting that a bow was giving, given to him which Bible scholars believe is probably a reference to Nimrod, who became a mighty hunter before God, a giborim. And let me read you some things about the Antichrist in Daniel 8, 25. He will cause craft to prosper. In Daniel 9, 27, we know that he will eventually make a peace treaty with the nation of Israel, but halfway through, he'll break it. You know, about all the different times and seasons in the Bible, did you know that seven-year period of time, the tribulation, did you know that that time, specific time, is spoken of in the Bible more than any other specific time that's ever mentioned? Did you know that? That, the, the references, the times, times, times and a half, 42 months, 42 months. I mean, it's all through the world, and it's so specific. The 70th week of Daniel, a seven-year period. Everything about it is so specific. This is a time that has been predetermined by God that it will happen. And it's interesting because I've read through the prophets and seeing the references to things like, in the latter times, this will befall. You know, even Jeremiah, in the latter times, and he talks about the days of Jacob's trouble. 
And even extra biblical writings, as I was reading through the book of Jasher, it, it, it really stuck out to me because Jacob was, was blessing his sons. And many of you are familiar with this passage where he crossed his arms to bless Ephraim and Manasseh, remember? But he was blessing them and all that. And he said this in the book of Jasher, in the latter times, trouble will befall you. He was prophetic about the days of Jacob's trouble in the end. So this Antichrist, the prince that shall come, here's some descriptions about him. He's the seed of the serpent, a worthless shepherd, little horn that boasts, the prince that shall come, does his own will as a king. He has the nature of the beast, the Antichrist, which is a false Christ, the lawless one, the man of sin, the one who will come in his own name, and the son of perdition. You know, there's different theories about the Antichrist. Bible scholars have speculated about different things. I've read a lot of different stuff through the years. Some think that maybe he will actually be Judas Iscariot. There's people that believe that and teach that that Judas Iscariot, because it says that he went to his place that was prepared for him. I don't necessarily believe that, but I'm just saying what some believe. There are some Bible scholars that believe that he will be like a Nephilim, just like, uh, let me say it again, like a Nephilim, just like, for example, God, through the Holy Spirit, that Mary, a Jewish woman, was procreated in the same way they believe that Satan somehow will cause a procreation. Y'all look this way and give me your best ear, closing things out. A procreation of some kind with a Jewish woman bringing about this false Messiah. Isn't that crazy? But there's different speculation about this guy. But I'll tell you this about the Antichrist. The Antichrist will not be just some random guy walking down the streets of like New York or Chicago that all of a sudden it just falls upon him and he's randomly the Antichrist. That's not going to happen. This is something that's going to be pre-planned and predetermined. Some other descriptions about the Antichrist, his characteristics. He will be an intellectual genius, a persuasive orator, a shrewd politician, a financial genius, a forceful military leader, a powerful organizer, and he will help to unify religions. His physical description, this is interesting to me, because do you remember where it said that he was wounded in the head? And then somehow there was some kind of like a counterfeit resurrection of the dead? His physical description might be here in Zechariah eleven seventeen. It says, woe to the worthless shepherd who abandons the flock. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. His arm will be withered and his right eye blind. So some Bible scholars have speculated maybe this guy has had some kind of a wound to his right arm and his eye, but yet he was like resurrected from it. It should have killed him, but he didn't die. So the world kind of wondered after him as some great leader. He's a counterfeit to Jesus Christ in every respect. You understand that? Isn't it interesting, the seed of the serpent? That may be where some Bible scholars believe that literally Satan somehow 
will cause his seed into like a Jewish woman to bring about this false Messiah? Could be, I don't really know. But isn't it interesting that when God told Adam and Eve in the garden, he said to the woman, there will be enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman talking to the serpent. Now, we know that in a very general sense, that has to do with the animosity that's between those that belong to Satan and those that truly belong to Jesus Christ. How many knows there's always been persecution toward true Christians? Okay, there's a battle of seed there, if you will. But it also is a reference, I believe, to, you know, this is obvious here, the seed of the woman ultimately was going to be Jesus Christ. But in a counterfeit sense, the seed of the serpent, so to speak, is the Antichrist. So you see this battle of seed there again. But the Antichrist in Greek, anti means over, against, or instead of. So we do know that the Antichrist is going to be a false messiah. He's instead of. That's why Jesus said about him, he said, you won't accept me, Israel, when I come in my own name. But you eventually will accept the one who comes in his own name. That's the Antichrist. That's the false Messiah that Israel will eventually accept, and many will believe he is the Messiah. Why? Because of the peace covenant and because of the fact that they're able to reinstitute temple worship again because of him. And when it says there in the Greek, who comes in his own name, it indicates like another Jew. And to be a Jew in Israel, you only have to be so on your mother's side. So just keep that in mind. I'm just giving you different things that Bible scholars believe. And just you draw your own conclusions and study for yourself. But this is the last thing. If you want to go through this on your own, it is an interesting studying. Read over it at home. But Old Testament allusions to the Antichrist. Here's some different names. Number one, he's seen as the adversary, the Assyrian. That's interesting. The Antichrist is called the Assyrian. It makes me wonder about that part of the world. All right, also Belial, bloody and deceitful man, branch of the terrible ones, the chief prince, crooked serpent, Leviathan is seen as connected to the Antichrist, the cruel one, the destroyer of the Gentiles, the enemy, the evil man, the head over many countries, the head over the northern army, a worthless shepherd, the king of princes, the king of Babylon, the little horn, the man of the earth, merchant with balances of deceit, the mighty man, the Gibor. Again, you see that reference there. That's very Nephilim reference in the Bible. The nail, the prince that shall come, the prince of Tyre, the profane wicked uh, prince of Israel, the profane wicked prince of Israel, the proud man, the rod of God's anger, the seed of the serpent, the son of the morning, the destroyer, the vile person, the violent man, the wicked one, and the king who does his own will. All of these are kind of like allusions to him. And so when you go back and look over this, listen, next week, I'm going to look at uh, Revelation 17 and 18. I won't probably cover both of them in the same teaching. But I want you to read Revelation 17 and 18 talking about Babylon. Because this end time system 
under the Antichrist, where the nations are brought under his dominion, there's going to be 10 different land masses that are primary. He's going to be over that, and the Bible calls that system of his leadership over the world, it calls it Babylon. So when you read Revelation 17, 18, read Isaiah 13, and read Jeremiah 50 and 51, because they also prophesy one day about Babylon's destruction. So there's kind of an allegory there because you're dealing with ancient Babylon that came down, but you're dealing with a future Babylon under the Antichrist that also will come down. All right, so let me pray. Lord, I thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for understanding the book of Revelation, understanding the bowls of wrath tonight, understanding that last half of the tribulation time. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, you alone are worthy of all the glory and the praise. Let everything be accomplished through this time in your word that you will be done in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. How many of you guys learned something tonight? My voice was wanting to give out on me. But I made it. <laughs>